It'll be help if you keep your Bibles uh, to the page that was just read. And in your bulletin, you should have a loose sheet. This is a sermon handout. If you can just take that out, that will help you follow along with the sermon. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks once again for gathering us together for worship. And even as we hear your word, and if I sp- even as I speak your words, I pray that the words will be pleasing to you uh, and help us hear with our hearts. Let your spirit move among us and teach us this morning. In Christ's most precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Research has shown that within one hour, people will have forgotten an average of 50% of the information you presented. And within 24 hours, they will have forgotten an average of 70%. And within a week, they will have forgotten an average of 90% of it. That's depressing. I'm just glad Keith is not here to hear this. Preachers do put an average of about 15, 20 hours a week preparing their sermons. And to know that 90% of what they say is going to be forgotten in a week, that's depressing. But you know what? I don't believe that's the case with all of you here in Christ the King. I sincerely believe that this congregation here do a whole lot better uh, than those statistics we've just uh, spewed. And I want to debunk this statistics, and I want you to help me with this. And I can prove it, because I'm going to give you a test. Okay? Like Elijah on Mount Carmel, I'm going to test you based on not, not what you heard last week, but what you heard nine weeks ago. How's that? That's two months and a week ago. Okay, now, Christ the King, we've got newcomers here today. And there'll be people listening to the recording of this sermon. So do me a favor, will you? Don't let me down. Okay? I have full confidence in all of you, okay? Okay, ready? Here's the test. Let's go. Nine weeks ago, Keith was preaching from Galatians 4. And he said, and I quote, That's what Paul wants, and that's what I want as your pastor. I can tell you with certainty that that's what your bishop wants as well. And above all things, above bigger services on Sunday, or more money, or planting lots of churches as a denomination, or success defined in whatever metrics is commonly used these days in a church planting world, or even in the world more broadly, Give it all up, because it's all about one thing, or we're missing the point. End quote. Now, here's a question for you. Do you remember what was the one thing that Keith wanted for each one of us here? Anybody? Yes, go for it. Those, uh, well, those who are here in the morning service know you are not counted, <laughs> but the rest of you. Can anybody remember what's the one thing? Come on. Christ forming you. Fantastic. See? I proved my point. QED. Christ formed in you. That's what the bishop wants. That's what he wants for all of us. Christ formed in us. I'm proud of all of you. You remembered. Against all odds. I can breathe again. Yeah. Q- <laughs> yep. I know I'm glad you remembered because our passage this morning. Teaches us a very important part of what it means for Christ to be formed in us. Let's get started. 
First, the context. This is literally the last paragraph of the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And verse 16 reads, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Well, the Passover feast is over, and this is one of three festivals each year that all the Jews were expected to attend in Jerusalem. So many are now returning to their hometowns. And for the disciples, their rabbi, Jesus, had just been crucified. Many of the disciples scattered. And the eleven, together with others, I'm sure, were now making their way down from Jerusalem to Galilee. And under such circumstances, we would expect them to be despondent, downcast, as they head to Galilee. But I don't think so. You see, I think they were full of excitement, full of joy. You see, early that Sunday morning, some women reported that Jesus had risen and they had seen Jesus. And Jesus told the woman to tell the brothers to go to Galilee where they would see him. And so I can imagine the disciples making their way now to Galilee with great anticipation and joy. They've got a rendezvous with Jesus. And Matthew writes, And when they saw him, they worshipped him. The eleven, and most likely with other disciples as well, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. And this is totally appropriate because he's now the risen Christ. Then Matthew tells us, but some doubted. Now the word doubted here can mean uh, either to waver or to hesitate. And some of this who may have seen Jesus possibly for the first time could well have hesitated or wavered when they saw him, uncertain if he's truly the risen Christ. Now, I don't think Matthew was referring to the 11 when he wrote this about some doubting uh, for two reasons. Because earlier on in Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, if you look up you know, in the Bible, just a few verses, Jesus told the woman, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Now, the word brothers here, as used in other parts of the gospel, if you look at uh, Matthew 12, for instance, the prayer refers to a, a larger group than the 11. And so the group that Jesus asked to see most likely included disciples other than the eleven. And secondly, while Matthew doesn't record this, we are told elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John that the eleven had seen the risen Christ on at least two or three occasions before this encounter in Galilee. And so seeing Jesus again would not be a total surprise for them. And to this group, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me all, without exception. But what then does it mean to say all authority? Throughout his gospel, Matthew has been making it point to tell his readers that Jesus had authority in teaching. We find that in Matthew 7. Jesus, Jesus had authority to forgive sin. We find that in Matthew 9. Jesus had authority over sickness, over demons. We find both of that in Matthew 10. And elsewhere in other Gospels, we know Jesus demonstrated authority over nature and even over death. Think of Lazarus, right? But I want to go further because I believe Jesus has authority over our country, our constitution, our governments, our neighborhoods, our marriage, our families, our job, our bosses, the law of physics, the stars in the sky, our universe all creation. Hear how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 17. 
Let me read for you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow. You heard that? In him, all things hold together. Now, pause for a while and ask, why is it important at this stage for Jesus to tell the disciples that he has all authority? Well, I can think of a few reasons. Well, first, as we know, some disciples were still unsure, having doubts, hesitating. And to these, Jesus wants to say, doubt no more. I have the authority. Secondly, if the disciples were to look around them, they would see clearly who's in charge. The Romans were. You could see in the presence of the Roman soldiers. You could see in the very coin that you used because you would have the picture of Caesar on it. You would see each time you, you brought in a haul of fishes from the Sea of Galilee if you were fishermen because you have to pay taxes uh, to those detestable tax collectors appointed by the Romans and so on. And to these, Jesus wants to say, fear no more. I have the authority. Thirdly, for the Jews waiting for the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read for you. Daniel writes this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. For the Jews were awaiting the fulfillment of this prophecy. To these, Jesus wants to say, wait no more. These prophecies have been fulfilled. I have dominion. I have the authority. But most of all, I think Jesus is saying to his disciples, I have a task for you to accomplish. And it may even sound ridiculous to you right now, but I want to assure you it's not. And to the disciples who may be anxious about whether they can accomplish this task or not, to these Jesus wants to say, be anxious no more. I have the authority. And Jesus tells his disciples, this is my task for you. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We call this the Great Commission. But before we get into the Great Commission, here's a short lesson on Greek grammar. One of the things that I've learned about Greek sentences is that you, you always want to zoom in first to find out where the main verb is. And this always gives, because this always gives you an idea of what the focus is for the sentence. And what a great commission looks like, it's got quite a few verbs. Go, make disciples, baptizing, teaching. But in reality, there's only one verb, one main verb. It's the verb, make disciples. In fact, it's not just a verb. It's what's called an imperative which means that this verb has the force of a command. And the other three, that is go, baptizing, and teaching, 
they are what you call subordinate participles. And what they do is that they serve to describe what the main verb is all about. In this case, they serve to describe what it means to make disciples. Now, with this grammatical clarification, I want to make three points about this command, the Great Commission. My first point is that I believe the Great Commission is the mission of the church. The Great Commission is the mission of the church. I've been very much helped by a book written by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. Uh, it's entitled, What's the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. So much of what I'm going to be saying about this point comes from the book. Now, to begin with, what is mission? Simply put, a mission is a specific task or purpose that a group or a person seeks to accomplish. Let me repeat that for you. A mission is a specific task or purpose that a group or a person seeks to accomplish. Now, if we agree on this simple definition, we need to ask next, what is that specific task or purpose that a church seeks to accomplish? And I think our Matthew passage this morning provides the answer. These are the last words and the last command of the Master to his disciples before, just before he goes away. And so I think that gives it a certain weight and importance that we cannot ignore. And the last command is to make disciples. And I believe that is the mission of the church. Let me state that with a little bit more detail. I believe the church is sent into the world to witness to Jesus by proclaiming the gospel and making disciples of all nations. The church is sent into the world to witness to Jesus by proclaiming the gospel and making disciples of all nations. And I believe that's what Jesus wants for his church to accomplish. Now, I know some of us may ask, what about things like social action, good deeds? For instance, what about the need for Christians to be involved in social, social justice, to be transforming the world, or to be building the kingdom of God? Well, as the author puts it, this may well be an issue of categories. So when we talk about being engaged in social justice, what we are often really talking about perhaps is loving your neighbours. So when we think of transforming the world, what we are really saying perhaps is that we should try to be a faithful presence wherever we are. And we may believe we should be building the kingdom of God, but we need to remember that the verbs related to the kingdom of God are usually passive. Receive the kingdom, inherit the kingdom, enter the kingdom. Maybe God's kingdom is something to which we bear witness rather than work we collaborate with. Now, don't get me wrong. All these are important. Social action, good deeds. In fact, I believe they are very important. And I think faithful Christians will and must be engaged in them. But our problem is that perhaps we often think of these things in two ways, two speeds. Either utmost important or not important. I think we need a third category. Very important. Social actions, good deeds, are not utmost important, but they're also not not important. They are very important, but they're not utmost important in terms of what God's mission is for the church. And I want to stress this because I hope this frees us from the false guilt of thinking that we, we as a church are responsible for fixing all the world's problems. We want to do good deeds. We want to be involved in social action. And I want you to hear that. In fact, we need to be doing good deeds. 
Well, we do that because we want to obey God whom we love. We do that because we love our neighbors. We do that because we want to show the world God's character and God's work. We do that because they are the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit's work in us. We do that because they sometimes winners are hearing for the gospel. But we also don't want to exaggerate our responsibility by thinking that it's our duty to build the kingdom of God through our good deeds. Yes, we want to relieve suffering. Jesus commanded us to do that. But more than anything else, we want to especially relieve eternal suffering. The Great Commission must be the mission of the church for two very basic reasons. Because there's something worse than death. And there's something better than human flourishing. I believe the early church understood this well. They clearly obeyed Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations. They were progressively accomplishing their mission in the book of Acts as they made disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, if that's the mission of God for His church, and the church is a gathering of God's people, then it would make sense to think that perhaps this mission applies to us as individuals as well. Which brings me to my second point. I believe that the Great Commission requires all Christians to be disciple-making disciples. Let me repeat that. The Great Commission requires all Christians to be disciple-making disciples. Simply put, if we are Christians, we are to make disciples. Jesus doesn't give us the option of being just a follower of Jesus who has got absolutely no interest in helping others follow Jesus. There's no alternative. Well, just in case you're wondering what Tina is on your handout, there is no alternative. (laughs) Right? Jesus expects it. Jesus commands it. And we dare not be lukewarm about making disciples. Yes, we may think that some of us may be better than others in making disciples. But it doesn't change the fact that all of us are to be faithful in engaging in it. It's just like we can't be a fish and can't swim, or a dog and can't bark. It's got to be part of our DNA. And why shouldn't we? If we truly have the good news, we want to share it. We will want more people to become disciples of Jesus too. So what does it mean to make disciples? And that's my third point here. I believe the Great Commission provides us with the template for making disciples. Let me repeat that. The Great Commission provides us with the template for making disciples. And this template has three points too. First of all, the word go. As I mentioned earlier on, grammatically, this is a participle. It describes an aspect of what it means to make disciples. We're expected to go. Now, what does that mean? I think it means a host of things. It's about being prepared to go across geographical borders, where we usually don't feel comfortable living overseas. It's about being prepared to go across the street to our neighbor's home when we don't feel like it. It's about being prepared to go into our children's bedrooms when we are tired after a hard day's work in the office. The point is that we are to go to be prepared to step outside our comfort zone. And so what do we do when we go? And that brings me to my second point, baptizing. Now, if you remember the Acts sermon that Keith preached, you remember how in those days, baptism was so often tied to the decision of faith. 
think of the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Think of Cornelius, the centurion, in Acts chapter 10. When the gospel was proclaimed, the people believed, they were immediately baptized. And so in the mind of Matthew, as he writes the gospel, the participle baptizing is a shorthand way of starting the process, stating the process where a disciple proclaims the gospel and a hearer responds in belief and repentance and is baptized. Let's be clear, baptism doesn't save, but it's an outward sign of an inward reality. The inward reality of a new identity in these people. They now belong to a new family, a new spiritual family that bears the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's evangelism. Telling people who never heard of the gospel before what the good news is all about and helping them to come to a point of belief and repentance. Baptism is the initiation rite for that. But we don't just leave them there. The third participle is teaching. And this is about teaching truths to new believers who've just become a member of God's family. This is about teaching a new believer all that Jesus has commanded us. And Matthew has recorded a lot of Jesus' teaching in his gospel. And we will find much more teaching from other parts of the Bible as well. And so it's important that a new believer learns from all of Scripture. But that's not all. Because Jesus didn't just ask his disciples to teach new Christians in order that they may know all that he has commanded them. Jesus asked his disciples to teach new Christians in order that they may observe, that they may obey all that he has commanded them. So it's just not teaching for hate knowledge. That's important. But rather it's also teaching, it's training for life transformation through obeying all that Jesus commanded. It's training new Christians to have Christ more and more formed in them. And this means many things, but what must be key is that it must mean investing in the life of someone, spending time with them, and modeling for them Christ's life in you, so that they may in turn become mature and equipped disciples of Christ, who are keen to do the same in the lives of others. I know that's a pretty long sentence. Let me repeat that. It bears repeating. This means investing in the life of someone, spending time with them, and modeling for them Christ's life in you, so that they may in turn become mature and equipped disciples of Christ, who are keen to do the same in the lives of others. And so Jesus' command provides us with a template for making disciples go, step out of the comfort zone, baptizing, proclaiming the gospel and helping unbelievers believe and repent and are baptized. Teaching, training believers to know and obey the scriptures to have Christ more and more formed in them. And so that's a template. Go, baptize, teach, repeat. And that's the genius of the Great Commission, isn't it? Because that command from Jesus has meant that you and I today, 21 centuries later, can become also disciples of Christ. I want to pause here for a moment just to remind us again of the context in which this task, this great commission was given to the uh, disciples. Think about this. Jesus is speaking to 11 men and possibly a few others who were with him. Uh, I'm quite sure 
possibly there are more of us here right now in this room than there were uh, with Jesus at, at that point in time. And most of these men were unschooled in humble professions, soon to be without their leader. They were hated by the Jewish Pharisees, and they are under the authority of the mighty Roman Empire, which will soon be starting a program of persecution of Christians. You know all that already. And Jesus, into this background, is giving his disciples a mission to make disciples of all nations. This one is scary for them. I'm sure a lot of them have never stepped out of Judea before. They probably don't have passports even, right? And Jesus is telling them, look, go and make disciples of all nations. <coughs> and that's why, and that's why Jesus had to promise them the great comfort of his presence. Jesus said, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. My family lived in Vancouver some 10 years ago while studying. And we live on campus in a nice student housing residence. And one of the things that we got our kids to do in the evening was to take the garbage out and throw them into one of those huge garbage, uh, garbage bins nearby that collected all the residents' garbage. And one evening, we sent them out as usual to throw the garbage. And when they reached the bins, in the darkness, they saw five pairs of eyes staring down from the bins at them. Right? <laughs> Needless to say, they bolted. Uh, anyway, it turned out these were raccoons. But from then on, my kids didn't want to have to go on their own to throw the garbage anymore. No, well, certainly not at night. And if they had to go, they would want me to be with them. And somehow they thought my presence would have made a difference. Honestly, I don't know what I would have done if five raccoons attacked us. <laughs> but having me somehow, however useless, somehow apparently makes a difference for my kids. Now, Jesus knew his disciples would often be fearful. He knew they would often be afraid. And that's why he promised them his presence. And I like my presence for my kids. Jesus' presence can and will make a difference every time. That's why it's called a great comfort. And the promise of his presence is not only for his disciples, it's for all times till the end of the age. And so friends, the promise of the great comfort of his presence is for us now as well. Let me conclude. Having started this sermon by debunking a statistic, I want to now debunk a myth. And the myth is this, that pastors care more about numbers in their church than anything else. They want more converts, more bums on the pews, or in our case, more bums on the stumps. <laughs> I want to say categorically that that's not the case for us here in Christ the King. And I know I speak for Keith and, and all the clergy here. We want professions of faith, but we don't want any hasty professions of faith. We want baptisms, but we don't want any perfunctory baptisms. We're interested. We're not interested in making converts. We're interested in making disciples. Faithful disciples of Christ. Disciples who will obey Christ. Disciples who want Christ formed more and more in damage day. Now, we know making disciples is hard work. For all of us here at Christ the King, it's not just a job of the clergy, but it's for all of us. And we know it won't be easy. And we know there'll be no shortcuts, but we are committed to it. Because we know that making disciples 
is Christ's mission for our church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.